Hi everyone, today is October 16th, 2014. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Mickey Marinelli, who is Associate Professor of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the College of Pharmacy uh, at UT Austin. She's also got secondary appointments at the Institute for Neuroscience and the Department of Psychology there as well. All right. Um, her research explores the biological mechanisms that yield variations in liability to addiction. Her lab combines techniques that span various levels of analysis from molecular to cellular, anatomical and behavioral, the whole range, um, in an integrative uh, sort of look at the biological basis of addiction. So um, around the room, we've got Gerard Bowden. Mm-hmm. Hello. Hi. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. And we've got Matt Winnott. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Selma Koreshi. Say hi. Hello. Oh, I didn't, I didn't actually have you <laughs> say hello. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, uh, was that about right? As yes, absolutely. Great. So, um, so I, a lot of your work seems heavily couched in understanding the, the heterogeneities in the dopamine system. And one of these is uh, differences in uh, I guess what we just called liability to addiction. Can you tell us what that means and how it's assayed in the lab? And then we can get to some of the stuff that you've been looking at. Yeah, so um, not everybody gets addicted to drugs. Um, Some subjects can experience drugs and keep using recreational drug use, and some others try drugs and immediately they get hooked. And so why is there this difference? And there are different ways that you can push it one way or another, and experimentally or in real life, not on purpose, but it so happens. So if you stress individuals very much or if you stress animals in the lab, they'll be more likely to take drugs than if you don't stress them. And it's the same in humans. More stressed humans are more likely to relapse to drugs if they had previously taken them or to even acquire drug um, addiction-like behavior. So we can model all these different things in the lab and then study the brains of these animals that we've rendered more vulnerable or less. Another model that we use a lot is uh, adolescents, um, and adolescent humans are more likely to take drugs. But it's hard to study adolescent humans. First, you don't know how much access they had to drugs, if they were different before they took the drug or after or, or induced by the drug. So we can study adolescent rats and compare them with adults and see, are they different to begin with? And if so, does this different promote one group to take more drug than the other? So you just named a number of factors there. So there mm-hmm. was so there and and so the idea is that some of these are all sort of interacting, yes, intrinsic yes. and extrinsic factors. Right, can, you, right. can you kind of talk us through some of so that? So the one factor is definitely the environment. So stress and also drug exposure itself. The more drugs you take, the more you might become addicted, and then the two of them might interact. So you might be more sensitive to stress if you've taken drugs, or you might be more sensitive to drugs if you've taken stress, if you've been exposed to stress. And then there's also um, individual differences that you we don't know why they exist. They could be genetic predisposition. They could be early uh, life insults that have promoted one individual to be more vulnerable than the other. We don't know. So those are other just inter-individual differences, or age, again. And uh, all of them could interact with one another or even act on their own to promote addiction. Yeah. So there, there are fundamental differences that I think you and I guess now others have found in um, adolescent and adult dopamine system. Can you, can you talk like 
Exactly. Yeah. Like, what, but what do you mean when you say that? And then can you tell us also, can you say something also about maybe um, what the terms adolescent and adult mean and right. um, and how they're used in the literature? Yes. So the, the two, two, two things. So first of all, the dopamine system. We What we do is that we actually record the activity of these neurons by putting a little tiny electrode into the brains of rats and then measuring the firing rate or the firing patterns of these cells. And we compare them between experimental groups, in this case, adolescents and adults. So adolescents have the firing rate of these dopamine cells that's much faster than the firing rate of adults. And these dopamine cells, an increased activity of these dopamine cells is usually predictive of increased vulnerability. So it suggests that these adolescents that have increased firing rates are more vulnerable to addiction. So that's the, the main topic. And... Um, what is an immature animals this is specifically adolescents. Yes, so yeah. we've uh, measured the firing rate across the lifespan from uh, soon after weaning from to um, adulthood. And what we see is that early on when rats are weaned, weaned is when they stop they are separated from their mom and they stop drinking maternal milk and then they're given regular chow. So a few days after that happens is when we start recording and the, the activity of their dopamine neurons is, is looks quite normal, let's say from what an adult looks. And then it increases, it peaks during, it increases gradually over the days and peaks during adolescence, which in the rat is around postnatal day 42 to 45 to 47 perhaps, and then goes back down to adulthood. So you have this inverted U-shaped curve of the activity of dopamine neurons across age. Now, what is an adolescent rat is a matter of debate, perhaps across uh, studies. And we use a rat that's um, postnatal day between maybe 42 and 47, and 42 is when puberty hits in the rat, yeah, in the male rat. So what, what, is, what is the... Uh... What is the definition of, of uh, adolescence? So, um, right. for example, it, uh, people say that in adolescence, rats, the females, are become reached adolescence before yes. males. Is a there some before. kind of hormonal marker yeah, or, or yeah. physiological traits? There are calculate? hormonal markers that you can measure in females and in males, a surge of testosterone in males. But what we measure is something called the balanopropuchial separation, which okay. is a bit of a complex uh, term for um, we every day. We look at the penises of these rats and see if uh, the skin, the foreskin has pulled back. And when that happens is when they've entered puberty. And so oh. that's what we do. And obviously it's different for females. It's a different... Yes. Right. And we do that daily between both adults and adolescents, right? takes a bit of skill to learn to see it and then uh yes but uh, in, so, so in terms of um like if, if we're interested in neuroscience and in, in, in the brain is there some kind of marker or something that happens physiologically in the brain that could uh distinguish um a, an adult brain from an adolescent brain I don't know if they, you can really say that there's a switch at that point. I think different uh, brain structures have different trajectories of development. So some will start low and gradually increase and keep going, and maybe they'll plateau during adulthood. Some will have this inverted U-shaped curve like the dopamine neurons. Some do have a bit of a switch, like the prefrontal cortex is a classical example of that. GnRH neurons. GnRH neurons, right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, 
So there are some. Which are not in prefrontal things. cortex. <laughs> no, 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 no. That just, just right. occurred to me. It just occurred to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Hypothalamic <laughs> neurons, as, as I, I believe, um, in females, the medial preoptic area, I believe, is, is you know, yeah. important. So there, there are several um, areas for this. And I think each structure has its own level of maturity that doesn't necessarily happen at adolescence. Like, uh, I know the prefrontal cortex um, is at around postnatal day 35 that it becomes sensitive to dopamine D2 receptors for, uh, activation. Uh, but earlier on, it isn't. So there is a radical switch in that case. Um, a lot of receptor pruning occurs during adolescence, um, and, but different structures occurs at different, slightly different times. So you mentioned that about different structures, but yeah. what about sort of different neuronal subtypes within within those structures? Yeah. So you demonstrated that you got the inverted U-shape, you know, curve for the dopamine neurons. Right. But is there anything known about the putative, you know, GABA high firing right. that, neurons? That's really an interesting question. So what I'm thinking right now. So we have um, adolescents that are have this peak activity. And then we have young rats that have low activity and adult rats that have low activity. But the mechanism causing that low activity could be totally different. So it could be that young rats have low activity because they don't have enough glutamate. And old rats have low activity because they have a surplus of GABA, for example. So I don't know the the local um, neurons, how that uh, works, but it's definitely a really interesting question. I A study that um, I didn't present today at all but I, I did um, measuring the activity of dopamine neurons in response to nicotine in young animals and in adult animals, which had a similar firing rate to begin with because they were on one side of the curve and the other, yet they respond totally differently to mm. nicotine. So um, that, that, that could be another example. Nicotine is one of these drugs, right, where they say... You in uh, humans, if you get exposed to it, like during teenage years, you're actually much more likely to get addicted. Exactly, the long-lasting addiction that like right, someone can never right. quit. In, um, in my case, I found um, that. Um, so this is. Uh, uh, it's, it's not a big study, and there are other studies out there by other people who have shown that nicotine excites dopamine neurons. Sure. A lot of them, though, have been done in, in the slice. Yeah. I did it in, in vivo, and I found that it doesn't excite dopamine neurons in adults, but it does in adolescents. Hmm. However, my study was in anesthetized animals, so that might have interacted with the results. So I, I take it with a grain of salt, but it's an example of, yes, it does change one set and the other, yeah. I don't know if we finished completely with the adolescent and adult thing, but, but before yeah. we, we talked about the increased firing rate, and we know that dopamine neurons have these sort of complicated patterns of activity where they have the phase yeah. and the time. And right. So can you talk about whether you see differences in the patterns of activities right, and bursts right. versus So yeah, these, these dopamine neurons uh, fire in patterns that are, at least in vivo, anesthetized and in vivo, uh, freely moving, have this irregular pattern, and then they have this... Um, clusters of events that are called bursts and um the 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 what bursts do is not a hundred percent short to be known but they might be important because during a burst event there's a lot of there's a there's release that's a when dopamine is released then it's reuptaken reabsorbed back into the synapse by transporters but the release it's so rapid during that time that it saturates the transporters and so during a burst event, there's more accumulation of dopamine than not. So it might represent a sort of salient for the animal to have these burst events when there is more dopamine that's being um, accumulated at the synapse. 
And uh, so I was thinking I might find more bursting in the adolescents and the adults, but uh, but I didn't. Uh, I found the more irregular firing is higher, and the burst didn't change at all. And other models of addiction and in inverted commas that I did, I, I rarely find changes in, in bursting that are as strong as the ones in regular firing. Yeah. So if the bursts are associated with rewards or something like that, what's the... What's the background firing? Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, I actually um, think that back... I think... Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I'm not sure if bursts are associated with rewards. What I think is that synchronous firing is associated with reward. That's, but it's a real speculation in my case. And I think that when people produce bursting, they produce synchronous firing at the same time. And so that's what's actually... You can't separate the two, I think. But that's my 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 so idea. Maybe burst isn't something all that special. Is per, that, that's per, perhaps, saying? perhaps, right? Perhaps, perhaps. Because this sort of tonic dopamine level has been thought of as doing right. doing something independently of the yeah. basic dopamine level. Like that. But it can't mean too much bursting because if you look at one individual dopamine neuron, it projects to a gigantic portion of the brain, huge. So it says this neuron projects here. This other neuron projects here too. If they're all bursting in asynchronous manner, this gets tonic. It's not getting. So it adds up as a as a you know, unless they're very synapse specific where they go. Are all bursts created equal? Wow, that's <laughs> <laughs> I that's I don't heavy, know. Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the definition of a burst is also very controversial, you know. Um, um, it can be arbitrary or it can be neuron-specific uh, or pattern-specific. And uh, So but irrespective in your manipulations, it's not the burst that it's are not really the burst, important. Right. Yes. So That's can true. you... So, so well, can, can I say, just keep on that a little bit? Because, because dopamine has something to do with with uh, mood, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so if I have more dopamine generally, let's say that I did something that caused every action potential to release more dopamine mm-hmm. than normal, then I would have elevated mood. Mm-hmm. Is that not true? Is that not what we think? For example, I don't know, I'll just pull something out of the hat, like let's say I took some dextroamphetamine. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, uh, at, at that point, um, I don't know for sure, but I've been told that I might have elevated mood. <laughs> yes, and there are models of depression with decreased dopamine levels as well. So when you go into the learned helpless realm, you do have subnormal uh, dopamine. So, yes. so might we think that adolescents would have elevated mood because of that? <laughs> <laughs> hmm... Certainly more mood liability. <laughs> right. Right. I, I don't know about that. I don't know um, how much um, certain changes are dictated by changes versus a sustained increased activity, whether you habituate to that sustained increased activity or not. I, I don't know. That's a good question. But they definitely do seem more at risk for risky behaviors not just addiction. So if it's driven by dopamine, that's what I'm thinking, but it could be other things too. Yeah. So, you know, you've looked at the, the firing rate changes with adolescents. Has anybody looked at sort of the dopamine release 
levels throughout adolescence. And yes. just simply, if you were to give an equivalent dose of, you know, cocaine to a yes, juvenile versus an adult, do you have a functionally much greater dopamine right, release? Right. Um, you know, because there's so many other mechanisms that could be at play. Maybe the juveniles have, you know, a higher transport level. So right, now absolutely. the release has been um, nullified yeah, in yeah, a way. Yeah. And um, yeah, just curious if um, yes. people have studied those. Uh, they have. And um I should remember, but I don't remember off the top of my head. There are two studies that I that come to my mind. One is by Donita Crippens that she did. Uh, I believe uh, she does voltammetry, doesn't she? I think maybe not. Maybe before my time. <laughs> Donita Robinson. Sorry, she's called Robinson. Oh, Donita Robinson. Yeah, yes, she used yeah, to yeah. be called Donita she Crippens. Did, yes. um, yeah. Um, so she did one study and uh, where she administered cocaine in adolescents and adults, and then um, there were other studies as well that had. Um, several studies and i they're not all homogeneous these studies they're not all clear-cut where adolescents actually do have more dopamine yes that that so it's not so clear but i don't remember off the top of my head and i should um the results so yeah. you have you have sort of a, a proposed or working mechanism for where why, why you see this elevation in firing don't you yeah so i i it, i'm not sure but one possibility is that these uh Adolescent rats are receiving less inhibitory inputs, so GABA inhibitory inputs, possibly from structures that heavily regulate the dopamine neurons, which come from behind the uh, midbrain where these dopamine neurons originate, um, um, what is called either the tail of the BTA or the rostromedial tegmental nucleus. It's possible that they might have less of that input. It's possible. So is that is that just sort of a developmental... Uh, right. Is this an epiphenomenon of some right. kind of late developmental Right. Thing, so the question is, why is it? Has a, uh, has that neuron not fully developed? Has its uh, axon not fully reached the VTA? Um, I, I don't know how that uh, could be. Or it, has it developed, but it's not yet functional as much? Uh, I am not sure. We're trying to test it with a technique called optogenetics, whereby we activate only that specific pathway. And very preliminary result, but very preliminary, suggests that this pathway is functionally not as active in the adolescence. But um, why that is, I am not sure. So we're going to measure the number, you know, um, you know, the, the, the synapses perhaps onto the dopamine neurons or similar. Uh, but it will be a tricky study are there, to do. Are there precedents for like large, long? Because we're talking about brain stem. I mean, these are long distances. Are there? What do you see things like that in development with adolescents? Uh, right. Sort of yeah. Huge but, things happening like that. Critical periods. I mean, critical periods. Yeah. I mean, these critical periods. But are, are there anatomical correlates to the? To, I mean, do we actually see? Well, yeah. I mean, if look at the thalamic cortical projection, right? I mean, when you get this mon- monocular separation. And the and, you know the cortical columns, you know that that's those are experience dependent though, right? Do you think? Yeah, that's I mean, I mean, a lot earlier than what we're talking about here. Yeah. but the same idea probably, right? Yeah, there there are definitely um, some example. In this case, it's a short distance. In the case, in our case, it's probably just a millimeter and a half, so it's not huh. very long. Uh, but there may be others that aren't fully developed as well, yeah. And it could be various things. It could be just protein-level expression of the postsynaptic receptors so that even though it does release, maybe the postsynaptic receptors are not there to 
perceive it. Although I did a study of postsynaptic, you know, response to GABA, and I didn't see a difference, so I, I doubt that that is the case. But you know, th there could be other um, postsynaptic receptors, and yeah. So one of the other things you mentioned a, a little while back was stress. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us that story a little bit? Talk about how you define stress. How you, yeah, how you stress is so hard to define, and we always think of stress as something negative. Um, but there's always a little bit of pleasure in every stress, <laughs> in every pain. No, but stress, um, um, if stress were always negative, um, we wouldn't do anything in life. So um, it's possible that, that mild stressors are actually positive to some extent. And, and in this case, they might actually produce the same effect as a drug. And um, so we, we can look at that by stressing animals just mildly stressing them and looking at their brain. And what we found is that when, when we stress them with different models that I'll explain, they have an increased activity of this dopamine system. And um, it's sort of strange because you would expect them to be depressed with the stress, but we give mild stresses, which are perhaps more activating than than strong stressors. Like going for a swim in some cold water. <laughs> like going for a swim in some cold water, exactly. Which so, can be very invigorating. <laughs> exactly. Or going in a sauna and then rolling uh, in the snow, right? <laughs> right. Um, but um, if you think of it, a lot of people self-administer stress, right? We wouldn't be working in our field if it was not, if it was, there wasn't any sort of rewarding property of it. And one could think of, of, of stress activating perhaps this dopamine system as an adaptive mechanism to make us cope with stress and, um, and um, accept it and, and keep going rather than give up immediately. And so how do we stress rats? So um, it, it, it's sort of you have to choose what's evolutionarily more fit for rats. And so we use uh, uh, restricting their food, uh, which can't work for humans, because for humans, if you restrict their food, they're aware of it. So it's not an unpredictable stress that you don't know what's going on. But for rats, it works quite well. And we either restrict it or totally remove it for one day. Um, or we... Uh, Put them, yes, in a bucket of water for four minutes um, uh, of cold water. Yeah. Can you talk about this idea of elasticity of behavior and stress? Yes. So, um, elasticity is a term that has been coined by um, behavioral e economists to measure how a behavior responds to environmental changes. And I might not be explaining it perfectly, um, but this, um, in the field of addiction, we can measure how our response to drug changes when the price or the cost of the drug increases. And you can be elastic in the sense that you can change your intake of drug when the cost of the drug goes up. And that's why a lot of times they increase the price of cigarettes and intake goes down across the country, less people take cigarettes. But if you're a real addict, it doesn't matter. You can increase the price of cigarettes and you'll still get cigarettes. So you're inelastic to the change of price. And there is a, uh, if you if you make the price higher and higher as days goes on or in different rats, it doesn't matter. Um, you can measure the flex point at which from a regular intake, it sort of goes down. They, they sort of, they give up. That's it. After this point, I'm not going to spend any more money on it. And that is the point of elasticity. And uh, stressed rats um, have it much more 
moved to high prices than non-stressed rats. So they are less elastic. They're willing to pay more for their drug to obtain it. Um, So is this, you're using it in terms of sort of elasticity, but um, would you sort of speculate and comment in terms of sort of habitual responding, which is sort of another facet of addiction. And it's sort of been suggested that dopamine in in particular in the dorsal striatum is going to be playing a a greater role in sort of allowing for habitual compulsive type behaviors. And so do you think you would find sort of a different segregation of, you know, looking at dopamine neuron firing properties of neurons that maybe project to the dorsal striatum or this sort of stress response is maybe actually preferentially influencing the dopamine neurons that go to the dorsal striatum as opposed to the ventral striatum. Right, that's a good question. So I've never uh, recorded, uh, I've only, so the the neurons of the midbrain project to the ventral striatum and to the dorsal striatum. And the ones that project to the ventral striatum are mostly located in the ventral tegmental area. And the ones that project to the dorsal striatum are mostly located in the substantia nigra pars compacta. I've only recorded the substantia nigra pars compacta versus the ventral tegmental area in one model of addiction, not in all of them. And in this model of addiction, I found uh, it was just inter-individual differences, individual rats that are more likely to take drugs versus not, and they had differences in both. The difference was strongest in the at the ventral tegmental area than in the substantia nigra, but the differences were in both. So it would seem to affect both of them. So how do we measure habitual behavior? I, I, I haven't measured it. The only thing I have done is that they, after they were trained for drugs, many times we put them through an extinction period whereby the drug is no longer present. And if they formed a habitual behavior, oftentimes you could infer perhaps that the extinction would be longer because they would keep pressing or responding even though there is no drug. The value is totally gone. Uh, but that doesn't happen for some reason. So uh, I'm not sure if it's just habitual behavior. So isn't that the kind of data that would make you say the value of the drug has gone up? Right. Because that value is measured by how hard I'm willing to work to get something. Right. But assuming that extinction is the same. and That's what I'm thinking, yes. I think the value of the drug has gone up. And in fact, if you give different doses of drug to the animals, you will see that at middle to low, middle, and sort of moderate doses, adolescents take more drug. And at high and low dose, very low doses, they take the same amount, which is typical of value of the drug going up. So you have like a upward shift in the dose response curve, um, which isn't indicative of a, perhaps a higher value, right? Yeah. So if, if we were just to look back over everything and say it that way, then we would say that, you know, moderate amounts of stress cause mm-hmm. drugs values to go up. Yes. And then does that, does it help to say it that way? Does that make <laughs> any sense? Is it like a, uh, do the drugs have any effect on the like uh, uh, adrenal corticoid system or the receptors for that or any of that kind of thing? Yes, yeah, so stress increases the glucocorticoids, which are stress hormones, and drugs also increase glucocorticoids, which are stress hormones. Um, and definitely there is an interaction between the two of them. Yes, I'm not sure... 
saying so being stressed increases the value of the drug it, I think it could be accurate I haven't measured the actual dose response curve in response to stress to show that there's an upward shift but it's very likely yeah would it be the same for all reinforcers like natural reinforcers such as food so doing a similar type of yeah. you know um, assay like you do here would you predict it is specific for the drug or would it also um, work for so, and it's hard to port it onto you right. know sort of natural reinforcers because right. you're typically giving a high Right, right, right. So I've I've only measured it with uh, chocolate sucrose pellets as as their that sounds like alternatives. That sounds like <laughs> <laughs> and I've measured it in <laughs> adolescents and adults only, and they seem to be the same on that. Um, but maybe I haven't measured it extensively enough. I've only measured it. You know, it could have been such a high dose that they all acquired. You know. If I did slightly tasty pellets, maybe they'd be different. I don't know. Well, there's, yeah. there have been some studies in the physiology of dopaminons, at least, where they had the original measurements of apathy and MDA ratios, mm -hmm. and they did a number of different drugs, yes. and, including stress. Yes. And all of them did that in, increased, in, increased yeah. this apathy and MDA ratio, yeah. VTA dopamine. Yes. I don't know if they did, in that, did they do any natural rewards? I don't think so, right? Um, yes, they did. They did. did? Uh, there was the, yeah. They did in the Borgland um, yeah, paper. Is it the Borgland? The, no, the Chen paper. Chen, Chen 2008. Yeah. So they did self-administration of cocaine versus of food. And uh, the self-administration of cocaine produced a prolonged increase in AMPA and MDA ratio up to 30 days after withdrawal of the drug. And the food did not. Um, but I don't remember if the food did it early on. Um, it's very different from what I find. I find that if you do self-administration and then you measure dopamine neuron firing, it's elevated only shortly after they go into withdrawal and 30 days after it's totally back down to normal. So there's this very big disconnect between AMPA and MDA ratio and firing rate. So it means that the increased firing rate that I see is probably not due to an increased AMPA, a glutamatergic input. Um, so that, but, but what it could be is that this increased glutamatergic input is important for salient stimuli. So they are more likely to get activated when they see a cue or... or and perhaps burst. <laughs> perhaps burst, right. Well, the other yes. option, right, is that maybe early on that... Do you, I mean, maybe... So uh, Julie Cower's work has suggested yeah. that there's that heterosynaptic LTP of GABA yes. synapses. And so maybe that plays a role in subsequent in reducing the overall activity level later. Right, so then maybe you have initially changes in excitatory synapses that are long that are long in the GABA. Yeah. I think the GABA is pretty early on too, though. So sure. I'm not sure I mean, that could be it. Based on the stimulus that was given, I guess. That's, yeah, she did a I cold mean, swim, I, I believe. Oh, as okay, a with the stress. Yeah. I, um, I think for, for the case of the increased firing early on, I think it's due to subsensitivity of dopamine order receptors, mm -hmm. I think. Um, but, but uh, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of GABA, uh, can I bring this up? It's a slightly different topic, but the, the synchronous pausing mm -hmm. of dopamine yeah. neurons is sometimes viewed as a kind of disappointment. Absolutely, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And so if 
and I don't know where that synchronous pausing would come from, but if it comes from the RMTG, for example, <laughs> uh, it's a, it should be a gap. It might be a GABA or JIC input, and that mm-hmm. would be a likely or source for it. Yes. And, and then if it turns out that that is developmentally regulated. Right. So it's funny you say that. So I didn't present some data uh, because I want to replicate it. I was more sure about it er- earlier on, but I want to really replicate it, whereby I subject adolescents and adults to a foot shock punishment test. Um, and... Uh, uh, the they right then during the foot shock punishment test, oh, both adolescents and adults stop taking drug. Hmm. This seems to work, but the next day, the adults just don't go anymore, and the adolescents it's as if they had never even experienced a shock. So I am thinking that if that input is developmentally I- immature, it's preventing the pause, and therefore it's present preventing the association with the. Punishment. That's exactly what I think. Right. I would explain a lot. A lot. <laughs> yes. right. right. That's what I'm thinking, and that's why the very preliminary data that I have that this input is not mature in the adolescent might explain perhaps why they're not sensitive to punishment. But there are caveats to that. So this RMTG punishment and habenula, which is a circuit, seems to be important during the punishment itself, not after the punishment. Mm. So you would expect that while they receive the punishment, they would be different. And I don't see that. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, so. Another facet of that, though, is um, are they impaired in their learning? You know, it's right, sort of, uh, yeah. um, you know, has somebody looked at your conditioning, looking at yeah, specifically, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. in juveniles versus adults? Have, and then, right. And you had mentioned earlier in your talk that there is sort of different, you know, um, pain thresholds. So that's sort of a right. confounding factor right. as well. Mm-hmm. But are these juveniles, teenagers, uh, know, yeah. do they have a, a more difficult time learning about the appropriate fear. consequences of yeah. uh, negative events? Yeah. So, there, so it's a fear conditioning. There are a few studies about fear conditioning and uh, they tend to use younger animals than what I have used. So, but yes, they seem to be impaired in, in that as well. Um, so about the acquisition and the extinction or, or what, what phases? It was the, I believe it was <laughs> the acquisition, but I don't remember. It's a PNS paper that I have on the top of my head, but I, I can't remember. <laughs> Thirty-five minutes. Anyone else want to bring up anything? So, uh, going back to that reward um, thing, mm-hmm. um, so I, I remember the original Schultz paper mm-hmm. uh, that they actually found that it was a subset of dopamine neurons that would burst. That and they would increase firing. That would increase yeah. firing, right? Yeah. What we he never used burst. the word. Burst. He never used the word burst. What he we now call burst, burst in activity. Uh-huh. Alas. Yeah. <laughs> Then but it, so the, right. if if they are all synchronized, then one might suspect that uh, he would have seen more. he would have seen every cell whenever right. he's recording to actually increase firing or burst whatever you want to call right, it. Right, right. Um, rather than matter Just of fact, it was like about less than fifty percent that he would right. see less than fifty percent would be actually. Um, but the yeah. ones that were doing it were doing it at exactly the same time. Right. With, with, he could make with, a collective Instagram of all of them. Yeah. Aligned to the reward, and it would, and it didn't get broad. Right. So yeah. they were all pretty clustery. Yeah, it's being aligned to the reward. So, so temporally, exactly. they are aligned. That is true. Yeah. But in terms of population synchrony, right. uh, bringing uh, in yeah. more neurons, I'm not so sure if that was would be the case. 
Maybe there is some synchrony, but it, it doesn't have may to be, be all as, of them. Yeah, it doesn't have to be all sure. of them. What I mean is that people who have studied the mechanisms, the the consequences of bursting, have involuntarily synchronized the area as well. That's true. That's uh, so. Then I don't know which one it is. And uh, right. Last wrap-up question. And the same thing for pauses. So, if um, if pauses is the, just the opposite end of the reward prediction error, right? Then that means if everything synchron has to be synchronized for it to work, then right. we'd also necessarily have to synchronize pauses. The pauses, right? And right. and that seems like a lot of work. things working together. To make yeah. everything synchronized together. If you're doing the experiment, I don't, I don't see why that's a problem, actually. Because if you're doing the experiment and you see when the reward should have come, 100 milliseconds later, the first cell that you get pauses. And now you get another cell and you do the experiment again. And 100 milliseconds after the reward should have come, that cell's pausing. Yeah. And then you do that and you see that all the cells that are responding are doing it like that. Now you just put them all together and it's clear that they're pausing synchronously. So, if you put them all together, if you can record them at the same time, right? So, but even if you can't, I mean, you've got the. But you're assuming that others. You're assuming that other cells are pausing also, because we're only recording yeah. from one cell at a time, right? Yeah. So if you think about a normal experiment, you're going, you're doing your experiment, and oh, the cell doesn't pause. Move to the next one. So you're always just searching for cells, and okay, now we found one that pauses. Let's let's do the experiment on this with this one. For all you know, every single cell. And the rest of the brain may not be pausing at that moment for some reason. Yeah, but if if you just uh, don't know, yeah, it's true. But if you get, let's say fifty percent of the cells are pausing, that was like yeah, yeah, about fifty percent what you said earlier. Then every other cell that I get is pausing, but they're pausing exactly in register with the same behavior. And so that I mean that allows you a certain ergodicity to you know to just say the whole population's doing that together it's not um, uh, it's because you have the behavior to put things in temporal register that's a powerful thing about that experiment no I I agree I'm not going against periodicity okay I I know you like that stuff but (laughs) (laughs) I'm just worried about like experiments by the Lamel when he was at Roper's lab where they found that the different cells depending on where they project to have very different responses to everything Mm -hmm. and so if they all act, if you know, if the, if the dopamine cells and the VTA and compact act as a gland and they just all act together, then there's a lot of data out there that seems to suggest that it has. And I to think Wolfram's idea was that he was sort of getting all of the cells working on one task because it was the only task the monkey was doing. Right. It was right. like a really absurd. That's, that's equivalent. It's equivalent to. Um, optogenetically activating all TH positive right. cells and then right. making them burst, right? So he, real he did it behaviorally. Would have right. A real life monkey going would, on at one time. would be chasing all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But, <laughs> but in the lab, the monkey was just trying to get that drop. He just wants that. But I'm really thirsty. <laughs> when I mean synchrony, I don't mean the whole population. I might mean yeah. one of the pathways, maybe 30% go together in one of the pathways. Yeah. So then it's maybe 2% of the neurons. You know, it doesn't have to be like the whole band of neurons that that do it but i think that it, it must be important at least postsynaptically it has to be otherwise there's a flood because everyone's firing at a different rate and so you yeah you get even though you do have these peaks of dopamine that might be associated with 
burst, although in, in, one, in a peak of dopamine, you probably have six burst events because a peak is much longer than a burst event is like 200 milliseconds and a peak of dopamine is much bigger. So you must have several of those. So when you add them all up, it has to be a flat line. It can't create a peak, right? If you have a cell that's bursting like this, and a cell that's first asynchronous, yeah, they converge on the target. Exactly. It's just going to make it a, fl a flood, right? Yeah, yeah. I think functionally, it's also important to realize like what's happening postsynaptically. I mean, we're all right. very focused on what the dopamine neuron is going is happening, but you know, you could actually have sort of wasted signals going out to different parts of the brain because yes. if it's you know dopamine's it's a neuromodulator. If it's not, if there aren't the other players involved postsynaptically there that are you know ready and willing to accept the dopamine signal or respond in any meaningful yes. electrophysiological manner to the dopamine signal, then it's just sort of a you know it's a null event. And so I think that there's mm -hmm. a lot of computation that's probably happening postsynaptically that we're missing when we're just looking at you know the dopamine neuron firing and dopamine release the best release thing a terrible thing to waste it's <laughs> <laughs> a terrible thing to waste I think the best yeah. definition I, I once read in a paper was that they, they studied the, the dopamine and they said that the, the firing was important because it, act, it it had an effect on the postsynaptic neurons that then went back to the dopamine neurons and affected the dopamine neurons and that's what was important so it was just <laughs> basically went back to the, the chicken or the egg and back to the beginning you yeah. know well, thank you so much. I think it's so funny how everybody sort of got their vantage point in the voltammeter. <laughs> yes! The guy who studies pauses and bursts as a reward <laughs> signal, the periodicity guy, and Gerard. <laughs> anyway, thanks for being with us. Uh, Mickey thank Marinelli, you very much. this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>